I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular belief that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. No society can legitimately call itself civilised if a sick person is denied medical aid because of a lack of means. That was Nye Bevan's rallying cry for the creation of the National Health Service. The NHS celebrates its 70th anniversary next week. A lot, of course, has changed since then. So what new pressures does the service now face and what remains? I'm Progress Deputy Editor Connor Pope and I'm joined by Chair of Progress Alison McGovern, Director Richard Angel and Karen Smith, MP for Bristol South to discuss the last 70 years of our NHS and what the next 70 might look like. On last week's podcast, we talked about social care and Alison, I think you spent a day working at your local care home this week to find out what life working in the care sector is like. How did you find it? So it was, it's a complete coincidence. I've done a, quite a few kind of days at work um, since I was elected and I've done, a, I've done three or four um, nursing homes because it's such a big issue for everybody in the country and definitely for my constituents finding good care. And I just had planned in last week a shift at uh, one of the care homes in Birkenhead in the Wirral. And previously when I've been working in, in those settings, I've often found it really difficult. I think it's possibly the one job that I would question myself whether I would be capable of doing it. Whereas I've done like shifts in factories and on shop floors and various things. And I always come away feeling really enthused and thinking, great job, like maybe if it all goes wrong, you know, like, <laughs> But actually, I was in an end-of-life care unit on Friday and without going into too much detail, the people I was working with were utterly phenomenal. It was incredibly uplifting, actually, to be there and I learned so much. And I would just recommend that anybody who's thinking about these issues, you know, you've got to get up close and you've got to listen to people who are there at the coalface and, yeah, it was it was really brilliant. Uh, so, obviously, Alison, you're an MP up in the Northwest and... Karen, you are down in the southwest. Do you think social care and the NHS more widely, do you think the pressures that they're under differentiate a lot around the country? I think they're pretty much the same across the country Mm. um, and they have been for quite some time. And the whole social care issue, who goes in, how you pay for it, has been 
kicked down the road by both governments for a very long time. But I think what Alison describes is my experience of working in the health service and in social care. People are really passionate about it. It's really difficult. People do like it. They feel a real sense of pride in it. And it's, Absolute it's great sense that you're of mission. That. Yeah. yeah. Just this driving sense of mission and all the little things in a person's life that they'd cared about that were important to them were important to those staff. You know, they'd taken the time to get to know people who were not a member of their family, but they got to know them well enough so that they could treat them like a member of their family. I was just deeply, deeply impressed. And that's, I think, one of the things of when you talk about some of the problems, particularly around social care, it's a really good point not to forget the really good stuff that goes on. And I think people working it sometimes feel that pressure, both in terms of the very real pressures and the stresses and the lack of money for some of that social care and in terms of people's payment but also that that real sense of people wanting to do it although we are short on recruiting people and we need to keep Mm. encouraging it we do and I think money is part of it I think I ask myself time and again whether it's appropriate for people doing such a technical and mentally strenuous job to be paid the minimum wage to be paid the legal minimum in this country I'm not sure that is appropriate but also I think progression is a problem so I think if you become a little bit more qualified as a care assistant, you probably don't earn that much more in terms of your pay. So are you motivated to stay? And most people who work in care are motivated by pay, or at least not those who want to do it well. They're not motivated by pay. But I think there's no coherence between responsibility and the compensation that people receive. And then that's also true for nurses, you know, once you do qualify to be a nurse. So I think... The thing that I would put on my to-do list for the next Labour government would be like a workforce strategy, definitely. And given that you seem to agree that the pressures around the country tend to be quite similar, where do you think devolution comes into this? Is that kind of not so much a priority? I want to talk about funding and staffing a little bit later, but I just kind of want to get a sense from you both on where that comes into it i'm not wedded to the idea of devolution around health and social care at the moment mm. um I'm, i mean my my personal jury's out really i think that's um what's happening in manchester is really interesting i think that what they're able to do up there and also andy burnham having done a lot of work they did a really good lot of work in the labor team up to 2015 around the mental physical and social needs and i think they've been able to put that into place in manchester it's an interesting experiment but it still begs lots of questions about national standards local power although i'm very much into greater accountability at local level that's me really sitting on the fence isn't it <laughs> i think i think my jury's out i don't know about you alison this is not my this is not my area of expertise but i think what you say about local accountability is really interesting like how do we make sure that people have their say because at the moment it feels like we're having a big national conversation about the NHS, its funding and what it does. But yet I think people in my constituency still feel that someone else is taking the decisions about their health service. Mm. And for example, in my area, we've got issues around the geography of what devolution looks like and we're still trying to sort of run on some of the issues that we are doing. So I think part of my reticence is really about, you know, those local devolved areas being able to do what they're currently doing rather than adding health right now which is going through Mm. on the 70th birthday anniversary quite a important time I think in its development and I'm not sure we should go straight on to devolution about that around the country before we have some of it a bit more stabilised. I think whether it's formally kind of co-commissioned locally or not where there are good relationships between the local authority and the NHS you're seeing really really good outcomes for patients so Liverpool in your back 
door, Alison, you'll know that the council is providing some of the infrastructure for kind of intermediate care to get people out of beds in hospitals and into the community, essentially, and into local authority provided facilities paid for by the NHS. So saving the NHS massive amounts of money, freeing up beds are are needed, but giving people the confidence that they can put particularly older people back out into the community in a way they can do that. So that's been a really good way of providing a better service for people in Merseyside and saving the NHS money. And there's real examples of that around the country, but it is quite patchwork at the moment. And the LGA lead uh, for Health and Social Care has written a great piece for the next magazine. And she was saying that that is often based on whether there are good relationships there or not. And of course, in some places, there are and in other places there are yet to be. That's exactly right. And I mean, I worked on some of this sort of eight, ten years ago, bringing some of these together and looking at the provision between the council and the health service. A lot of that work got fragmented in the Lansley reforms in 2012. They really were quite disastrous so, as regard lots so of what relationships. You, Karen, just tell us a bit more about what you were doing when you were doing that work and then how it was undone by the Tories. I mean, I joined the health service in 1988 first time as a, a junior planner and I've worked most of my life in planning and then commissioning of health services dipping in and out for a bit of time working for a Labour MP in 97 and a bit of time having children. But most of that time has been in planning. So seeing that through all of that time and a lot of work 20 years ago in Oxfordshire with the local authority. Um, And Richard's right. There's um, a lot of patchiness around the country, but relationships are key. So where you've got long standing relationships, things do often work better. So I'm a bit out of date in Oxfordshire, but even 20 years ago, Oxfordshire was doing quite interesting things with regard older people largely because people in Oxfordshire had stayed there working quite a long time and had developed relationships across the county. Someone's going to phone in from Oxfordshire at some point and say, <laughs> you know, uh, or email in and say, you know, it's terrible now. Where you've got people moving through quite a lot, which often happens in cities, you, you might not have those good relationships. But yeah, they do that without the structures. They, they get on and do that. So that's about people working together despite the structures almost sometimes. It's also about priorities in an area, isn't it? So in lots of cities, um, you've got, I mean, Bristol, for example, has a very young population. So lots of our funding and our priorities are around... Um, young people we've got children's hospital that attracts families with particular needs around those children and that does skew priorities locally a lot of older people obviously living in the southwest on the coast so they have formed uh, historically better services around older people and that's an interesting problem for the health service which is a standard national health service you asked about the Lansley reforms what that did really was a number of things but one of the things is take people's eye off the doing ball, if you like, and focus on setting up new structures, destroying some of those relationships, causing very confusing arrangements. And if people just think in their normal job, if you know any kind of change like that does take at least two years, um, people reapplying for jobs, building new structures, having new logos, all that sort of thing is a terrible distraction from the job in hand. Bizarrely, in just in the Wirral, which is like 300,000 people, those Landley reforms cost 25 million quid just to implement, just in the Wirral. So think about all of those 25 million quids across every borough in England. Nightmare, huh? <laughs> yeah, and the waste of and energy. And to not have measurable outcomes. I mean, sometimes you can point to reforms and it, there was some pain, but obvious gain. And the there seems to be a consensus across not just different bits of the Labour Party, but quite wide groups of people that these reforms are a real barrier now to doing the next stage of care that Britain needs. Well, I asked Jeremy Hunt in uh, the House of Commons 
uh, the other week in a statement, you know, he was talking about the reforms and I said, you know, just interested, does he think that they were successful? And and he, I think, quoted Sharon Lyon, said again, well, it's too early to tell. Uh, <laughs> and, and he actually laughed then. I said, well, but the hint in the announcement we've had recently about the so-called birthday money is that they will take licence to make some changes. And the health service has said, doesn't really want any changes yet because we're still kind of reeling from the last lot again what are the, what are the, what benefits do they get people that are trying to use services yeah it's all it's all very unknowable isn't it i feel like once things that were once reliable like waiting list targets you know targets on on public health measures like smoking and teenage pregnancies the things that we used to obsess about they're sort of like gone like the the NHS has become beset by all of these problems, but the kind of health measures that we're objectively testing ourselves against have all taken our eye off them. They, they dilute. I mean, some of them are not being met, um, and that's true. Things like A and E targets and the waiting lists, um, sort of our commitment, which is, um, I think you're all too young to remember this, but um, John Major famously said, "No one needs to wait longer than eighteen months um, for an operation." That's what he went into the 97 election talking about, which is do astonishing. Know, do you know, I, I feel like... Are you I'm, old enough to remember no, I can remember. <laughs> I can remember 1997 as if it was yesterday. And I can remember it being 18 weeks or 18 months. But I, can't, I couldn't remember that John Major actually said that. And I that, can that was his bold commitment yeah. of the Conservatives' determination to save the NHS and make it a good service, 18 months. Good grief. And that was ambitious for them because people were waiting so much longer. So our 18 weeks obviously was quite a nice little yeah. you know, new Labour play on that. 18 weeks is a, is a measure which we worked really hard to deliver now for some conditions. But that saved real people's lives, didn't it? That wasn't just a target. No, it's, that was it, a- no, it's a really important turnaround in the system and it was really hard work and it required a lot of you know I'm a manager by background it required a lot of managerial time and doctors and nurses and other clinicians to really focus on that and the A&E target as well Um, I mean I can remember I can remember what A&E was like before and I can remember that journey you know towards the four-hour target and doesn't it feel to you like we're just like edging backwards well I when it first looked like it was being diluted back down um, a couple of years ago. Um, I remember I was working around what's what's called urgent and emergency care in the jargon at the time and going into one of the A&Es and the managers there just saying, we don't want to go back. And I think what people mm. forget, and it's easier to sort of have a bureaucrat bashing, but nobody wants to go to work and see people lining the routes in on trolleys that's not what people go to work in the health service for we've all got families and and, and people that you don't want to see that happening to so people recognize that that was a good focus but to we've also got to look at real health outcomes and not just get focused on the process and what does that mean for people so i think those standards were about a good service because at the heart of this people pay taxes to fund the health service and our mission in government was certainly that to uh, make sure that people were part of that contract that 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 happened as a result of the welfare state that you you pay but you get a good service and people weren't getting a good service and therefore weren't buying into that in principle as well and I think that is really important. I think that's really true that I think pe- the best argument for the health service is a good service. And that's really important now, I think. Um, I mean, one of the things that happened this weekend, which may have passed people by, is listening to Jeremy Hunt talk to Andrew Marr. And one of the things he said was, 
well, we're going to go back, you know, we're going to tell people in the autumn in the budget statement how they're going to pay for this extra money, which is really welcome to the health service. And I just think that's not acceptable for a government to, to decide we're going to come back and tell you how you're going to pay for it. And nobody seemed to really bat an eyelid. Now, I know there's a lot going on at the moment, but this, 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 even now, and really interesting from the Tories, I think, this latest announcement, there's a real lot of paternalism still running through Absolutely. the health service from all sides of the political spectrum. And I just wonder really now that people should be thinking a bit differently about that because we've had sort of 30, 35 years of state-run central planning that Bevan set up. And it, it did a job. And then we've sort of all experimented with various marketization, privatization, whatever people want to call it, not really delivered either. And I think we need to move to a much more people-centered, accountable service that people recognize is really good value for money. It delivers amazing things, but it costs. And if we want people to pay for it, um, we should be talking to them about about that and how much they want to pay for it. We should be open about how much things cost. And if you want to be seen within 18 weeks or 15 weeks, then we have to pay for it. I think that is a really good point to leave that discussion. We'll be back in a minute to talk a lot more about exactly that, as well as the NHS's birthday celebrations coming up just after this. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. My name is Mary Wimbury. I'm standing for Labour's National Executive Committee. Along with my fellow centre-left candidates for the NEC, I'm campaigning for Labour Party members to have a say on Brexit at Labour Party conference. Last year, a stitch-up kept Brexit off the conference agenda. At Scottish Labour conference, the same happened. This year, Labour members must debate the biggest issue facing the country. Sign up to our campaign now at laboursay.eu. Thank you. Last week, as we spoke about a minute ago, the Tories announced a lot more money for the NHS as a 70th birthday present to be paid for out of a so-called Brexit dividend. Just for starters, can I ask Karen and Ali, what, what do you make of the Brexit dividend? 
pants on fire. <laughs> I mean, come on. Didn't everyone just think, what? Like the country is poorer. You know, what did Mark Carney tell us at Treasury Select Committee? Uh, some, uh, I don't know all... we weren't there. Up no, okay. We're all nearly a thousand pounds a year worse off because of Brexit is basically what he said. And, you know, people will argue about what the precise figure is because essentially you're comparing it to what might have been, which is always an inexact science. But, you know, the economy is not in a good shape. And the idea that there is a dividend from all of this is not quite right. And so your point is the amount that we formally transfer to the EU is dwarfed by the lack of growth to come in the, in the years ahead because of not being in the EU and therefore there will be no dividend. Well, from a technical ap- accounting um, point of view, just in terms of like when the money ceases to be paid, there's not a technical uh, dividend until 2022 anyway. Well, um, as in there's not any money available to even be a dividend. Yeah, from an accounting a- point yeah, of view. Yeah. Um, and of course, a lion's share of that will go on agriculture subsidy and yeah, all kinds know, of things. And that... then there's all of the other commitments. So we've yeah. promised to like backfill all of the things that the EU was paying for. But you might mean a kind of windfall from economic growth. You know, the Tories used to talk about sharing the proceeds of growth between public services and tax cuts. But if if that's what you mean, so it's not like a kind of an actual dividend, but rather a windfall from growth. Well, we're not having that either. So it is very hard to see what they actually mean by Brexit dividend. And actually, I think some of the most, I mean, I was just sort of like threw my hands up. I was like, yeah, whatever. But actually, some of the most vociferous um, responses came, I think, from people in the sort of academic world who were just like, if this is the state of politics where people just say words, they just say words, oblivious to actually whether they have any meaning, then Oh, is this the kind of politics we're supposed to engage in? Is it? Do you think this this um, effort to try and tie Brexit, which you know, I think maybe some of us in this room believe is probably not going particularly well with the NHS, because because the NHS has that such specific place in in the kind of British psyche, it holds such a kind of special place in in our hearts. Is is that the kind of political angle, do you think, that they've... Yeah, I mean, I think um, it was a nice attempt at spin, but as as Ali said, there's there's nothing till 2022, and that's an optimistic, mm. isn't it? And um, Hunt has said that, actually, again, as well, it's not the first five years. Um, I think linking the two, though, and it certainly happened in my constituency, which voted sort of 53% remain um, of that strong 47% and people were, the GP access was a big issue. Mm. So that's why they put the 350 million on the bus and um, that's why they've tried to link it. But I think they've fallen foul of that. But it is really welcome money. And I think there's a difficult balance for us in the opposition of um, the word used is churlish sometimes Mm. um, and welcoming it without saying where it's coming from. So it is really welcome. Things have been really tough. We've seen that in standards falling you know, for many years before in 2010, we knew there was a 20 billion gap till 2020. These are big numbers that mean nothing to people trying to get a GP. But um, this money only lets you stand still in the jargon um, for the next few years. It doesn't touch public health, doesn't touch social care. uh, It doesn't touch the capital. There's a 5.5 billion pounds deficit in capital. That means GP service surgeries crumbling, hospitals that didn't have a PFI boost under the Labour government. Um, or got rebuilt, all need doing. And what hasn't been money spent on is just, you know, leaky pipes and so on. 
But it's not just the kind of physical hospitals and stuff. I was listening to another podcast about... How dare um, you? Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, uh, about the kind of opportunities one? of kind of big data and why the NHS is so valuable and why it could potentially be a kind of revenue for the NHS, etc. because it's such a big data pool. And somebody on the podcast pointed out, yeah, but the NHS is still using fax machines. Like it's still communicating amongst itself so, in a way in which it's not able to do some of this stuff. So Justin Madders told me that is... Shadow Health Minister Justin Matters said to me that one in six pages in the world are in the NHS. That is a good Justin Matters. Stat, I know. Isn't he, it? Uh, everyone in the room well, laughed, yeah. and then we all went, oh, "I'm not sure that's funny." That shows the creaking system underneath, and that is what I think is so uh, difficult in this NHS debate is that we love the people who work in the NHS, and whenever you interact with the NHS, you see people who are at their often wits' end trying to keep the service together and showing real compassion and trying to make it work. But people are starting to notice that some of these things are starting to creak. And when you do see your doctor being called up by pager, when you do see them sending your records between hospitals on a fax machine, like, and then you do see that the physical entities that you're working out of are crumbling, people know there's a kind of time bomb that is going to hit the NHS if they don't do some of this stuff. And I think that's why it's been so disingenuous that this has been briefed as either a Brexit dividend or as some kind of like um, additional extra that's like great boost to the NHS, which is what a birthday present is for us, right? We get it as like you know, be, be, being given your kind of mortgage receipts as a kind of uh, birthday present. It's not really a kind of gift that you'd welcome. This is money that the NHS needs, it seems to me. Can I just clarify on the pager point? Because I actually do think that there might be people listening who don't know what a pager is. No. Um, okay. Well, oh we, uh, we, you know, Karen, I, do you want to explain this one? I, I've only ever seen one pager in my life. My dad had one You're, for a little bit when what? I was growing up. But there weren't, uh, you know, I don't think they were a normal, uh, you know, thing to have. We never had one in our family. Oh, well, they my were, dad's a railway engineer. So we like, <laughs> we, we had always had pagers knocking about. But then I grew up with my dad taught me how to use a soldering iron on one Saturday afternoon so it wasn't a normal upbringing Karen explain to the world what a pager is uh, well uh, technically I'm not sure I can describe it but um it beeps you to tell you what to, to make a phone call essentially yeah, you, um, you, so ring, you ring, ring up and ring leave a message. message and then it beeps you and you can ring back and you can tick back into it but I'm going to move you off the the, the doom and gloom actually on mm-hmm. that because it is true there are I think still the greatest user is fax machines and the odd pager. There's an amazing amount of digital work going on in the NHS. That's true. And despite the Lansley reforms, which we've come back to again, people are, you know, there are there are organisations and groups now, you know, moving into that. It, it is too slow. Moving, it's seen as a bit of an innovation, like a change um, and not what it is. Um, and people getting used to using technology. It's interesting because people, of course, use technology of... Uh, in their 60s 70s quite mm-hmm. easily and thinking oh should they use that in their workplace has just taken a bit of time but it's expensive um i happened to to be on the train with um a senior nhs leader a few weeks ago who then told me that they've got no money really in the budgets now to upgrade any kind of technology yeah. um that's really important because we all know that we can't bear using you know ipads computers that are more than sort of two or three yeah. years old so that's got to be in that capital spend which brings us back to the the recent announcement in that basically just to come back to your standstill point that's oh, we've got an aging population so that needs to be addressed and it really hasn't been then there's this issue of technology and and actually I should say my GPs they 
it's not complicated technology, but just the fact that they send me a text message the day before my appointment to remind me that I've got it is like a world of difference. And that's not complicated or expensive technology. It's just having the right patient-centered mindset that they understand that people are human beings and they just need a little reminder. Um, so there's there's the aging population, there's technology, and then there's the public health challenge. And for me, it, those three things were really just missed by the recent announcement that it was basically here's some money as Richard said just to keep you going hailed as a birthday present but actually nothing more than what it needed anyway and then completely missing these like three structural issues that the NHS is going to have to face which probably requires a combination of capital investment and a bit more revenue. The government has said um, they will be looking that the social care papers due to come out and they've said more things about that again recently, and that there will be more public health announcement, which is interesting, that I think, interesting. in terms of the rest of the budget settlement, because as as we all know as well in our constituencies, the effect of austerity on other services is really tight. And I think we've seen some of that with Gavin Williamson talking about defence budget and hitting against the government, because it's there is no doubt that um, in the government, the fact that the NHS does seem to gobble up lots of money, as they often describe it, and always seems to be in trouble, is a problem for other departments. Now, interestingly, that's always been the case historically. Governments have always seen the NHS as, you know, taking up too much money and always been a problem. Every health minister since 1948 has complained about that. Uh, and we're, and we're going to see that in the next couple of months. So I think in the next couple of months, we'll see other ministers looking for their departments to get money. That's uh, important. We're seeing lots of problems in our own constituencies. And I think uh, Jeremy Hunt and in local government, they're going to see a lot of uh, arguing about more money for this elusive Brexit dividend that doesn't exist when we think the country's getting poorer. So they've said they're going to have it, but where they're going to get it from. And I think this is where we should be having a conversation more openly with people about what they want to pay and how they want to pay for it. Um, and I don't know where we start that conversation at yeah. the moment. Although weirdly, when you say when you say that to me, I don't get, you know how when you're a politician, you kind of get like a sixth sense about stuff that might be difficult for your constituents. And I listen to you saying that, Karen, and I think my constituents are really up for that. They really think the NHS is the right way forward. They see it, as Richard said, they you know see it having difficulties. And I think they would welcome the chance for an open discussion about how we bring the money in to secure it. Of course, there's issues of trust in politics, but I don't think it's a conversation that the public would resile from at all. No, I think they're keen and generally um, I think there's more research coming out in the next few weeks about public attitudes. There is a public attitude about some of the things we were just talking about, about waste. Um, and I think the Tories do occasionally tip on that as saying there's a lot of waste because why do I have to tell my detail to someone three or four times? One of the things Theresa May said when she announced the money was people as, as in a pinball machine getting bounced around the system saying the same things. And people don't expect to do that these days. People do expect to have quite quick instantaneous service provision. People, I think people got to understand what, what that costs because we don't talk about the costs of that. Well, is, is that the kind of issue that essentially would be solved by having better technology within the NHS because uh, you know I think I probably am one of those people who's like I feel it's slightly ridiculous that you know I can't book a GP appointment on my phone or something which obviously I recognize is slightly unfair but given the way that I live the rest of my life I feel like I should be able to get things easier in the NHS so when you say you're you know ringing up several people and telling them all the same information is there 
is that the kind of innovation that we need to see? Well, it is a bit, um, but the NHS isn't one thing. Mm. The NHS, you know, it's a million people treated every 36 hours. That's a phenomenal organisation. Yeah. It's hundreds and hundreds of organisations across the country. So you might start off um, at a walk-in centre, you might start off at a GP surgery, you might stop off at an urgent care centre. There's lots of places you can start off. You might just go to the to pharmacy. And getting you then through to the right place is actually quite difficult. But this, the, we, we are far too jargon siloed um, in different parts of the NHS, even in a local geography. And the challenge is to look at people using the services, not a service, not just having a service there that you then try and fit into. And that's sometimes why you're a bit of a pinball machine. Also, it's complicated. People's um, pathologies, their illnesses, what, what they've got wrong with them are, are complicated and complex. And we do have, we've got a primary care system of GPs, which is just world-class and actually um, run on a very, I think we're down to 6% of the total NHS budget. It's a phenomenal, you can walk to the end of your street almost and see a GP. Now I know waiting times have got worse and some people are waiting weeks, but for the quality of clinical care that you get it's phenomenal we just don't fund community and primary care services well enough so this is this is a big question and i and i i'm completely bought into your idea karen that we should be talking about this actively with our constituents as a labor party within branches we should be talking about how we fund it we we should be having this conversation because the government aren't going to get the right answer if you could say there was one question that we should ask ourselves more than any other like, what's the question now that you think we should start with? I th- um, oh, boiling a politician down to one question. Poaching time, gamekeeper. Social care for me is 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 the really big one. I think, um, and I say this quite frequently. You walk into any playground, any workplace, um, most social places, and you will find particularly women talking about looking after or worrying about being in a what we call a social care setting. Um, people would think it might be their, their parents, their grandparents, and it'll be themselves. The fear of what happens to you if you need social care is phenomenal. And it's a silent misery that we don't always talk about. Now, it, it, there are difficult political choices there about the capital assets of people's homes, um, a national insurance premium, about intergenerational fairness, about all of those things that we all know exist. We had the paper under someone called An- Andrew Dillnot a few years ago. That's all got kind of pushed aside and the Tories are coming up with another paper. I think if we don't talk about social care, it will collapse the NHS, um, the workforce issues, everything gets wrapped up for me in social care. And it, people are talking about it, but politicians are not grasping it. We all don't grasp it. It's a really hard one. So if we're talking about how we pay for it, Labour in its last manifesto said she said this could be paid for by other people. We can find rich people who are not paying enough and we can make them pay a bit more. Because it's the NHS and because of how much we need it and rely on it, is this a tax that we all need to pay more for to do it? Is it one that is almost too important to rely on other people to pay for it? Do you mean for social care or for NHS generally? I mean, is it time that national insurance was split between an NHS tax and then a 
other bits that national insurance goes on tax again to go conveniently on the fence the hypothecation <laughs> issue I'm, again i think we need you could argue this for all sorts of other services okay, do we you? need a penny on income um, tax will that pay for everything that we need to but i think rather than putting out the jargon or the, the you know the, the penny on income tax um argument it's it's much more rounded discussion about what what sort of service do you want for what's how much do you want to pay so that people understand the, the what we call the quality in terms of mm. both your waiting times the level of clinical excellence and high quality care that you've got that is safe um and being able to access that and that does cost money yeah so is it a penny is it national insurance I don't know the answer to that question, and I'm not sure anybody else really does, but it is up to politicians to start the conversation. And interestingly, other people are starting to say, starting to say we need to involve politicians in that argument. My question is, where do we involve politicians? So me as a local MP in Bristol, I'm not involved um, with the local health service or about what sort of services they provide. They consult or put out emails to me like everybody else that constituents come to us expecting us to know about about things um but we have to vote for the how much money is spent in parliament so you've got a national vote but how that works out locally there's no link in the system yeah i think we've we've local accountability on health services is just it's never been got right um i think that often the first politicians know about it is when they're being handed a placard to go and campaign against the closure of something. And that's really <laughs> difficult for the service because then quite rightly, and I think um, I might have even heard on the radio this morning about an area that says, well, the first thing is the MPs will be out there defending any changes. And that's an accusation that I know my former colleagues in the NHS make uh, myself and my colleagues all the time. And my argument back is, well, you've got to furnish us with the information, but actually we're not the important people here. The important people are the people that are using the services, the public that are paying for them. Because actually, if MPs aren't furnished with the information, local people aren't being furnished yeah, with the pers- information. And we do have to try, start treating pers- people, I say, as assets, not nuisances. Yeah, we exactly. Need to- Persuade my constituents of the changes and I won't protest against anything because if my constituents are happy, I'm happy. They're the boss. But the, the I think the problem is that too often at a local level, people are conscious about how sensitive it is. So they become very secretive about any changes. And then that makes the whole thing worse because then people find out anyway, because they have to. And then they feel, well, we weren't involved. It was kept from us and we don't like it anyway. And then you get all of the protests and that becomes very difficult for NHS staff because then they feel they live in a, in a world of that's very politically hot you know it's heated discussion all the time and all they want to do is get the job done can i just quickly ask because we do need to wrap up in a minute but um me and richard interviewed uh shadow health secretary jonathan ashworth um recently which will be out in the next uh, issue of progress magazine and we talked a little bit about brexit which we've not touched on enormously here it's a welcome relief isn't it <laughs> <laughs> but i did quickly want to ask about that because he raised the issues with brexit are not just staffing which you might expect through um migration and that sort of thing but also regu- regulation um of medicine and and even stuff like basically medicine getting stuck in queues at dover and not being able to uh, stock pharmacists and that kind of stuff uh, specifically w- w- within the health service, is there is there worry about this, and is that getting through? And, and what bits of that are? Do you think? I think the biggest issue is workforce. It is mm. it is the biggest issue. Uh, it's, it would be the biggest issue almost regardless of Brexit, actually, yeah. because 
um, of increasing demand. And as we know, we're short of skills in this country and we're short of labour and we don't train and educate up. And I think we started talking about social care um, and making that attractive. But that is about training and opportunities for the future because people want to better themselves and improve themselves. So undoubtedly, um, that's why a customs union is so important, isn't it? Because it's the movement of those goods across as well as the service and regulation I think that is a real worry but workforce actually is is the biggest worry for the future of the NHS and social care anyway as We've well seen, as what, skills and its cost reduction in EU workforce applying to work for the NHS and a 69% increase I think Ben Bradshaw said in I'm EU not staff sure leaving. of the numbers and I've seen different numbers right. bandied about but what we do know is that uh, and on basic demand figures um, and what we want to try and do and some of the things we've talked about like technology and bringing things on and making changes and we haven't really talked about people living with lots of chronic difficult conditions all of that requires people to do things to make change so so yes workforce is re- is regardless of brexit and it's made worse by brexit we do need to wrap up there but uh, karen thank you so much for joining us today thank you. and next we'll have the pub quiz question Every week, Connor asks a political pub quiz question, which is then answered on Friday's review show. A very quick one this week. I just want the name of the NHS's first ever patient. Please send your answers to at Progress Online on Twitter and or office at progressonline.org.uk for your chance to win a mug this week. We're going to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have Karen Smith joining us today. Do send in your questions and comments through Twitter, email, or best of all, as an iTunes review, and we'll respond to them on Friday's show with the best iTunes comment winning a prize. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton who produced this podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.